Gospel of Luke, uh, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 17. Uh, we'll be looking this morning at verses 7 uh, through 10. Again, the Gospel of Luke, uh, chapter 17, and we're going to begin reading in just a moment in uh, verse 7. Uh, the opportunity for preparing for a weekly sermon is a unique challenge, and as I've told you many times, it's, it's a joy and a privilege. Uh, but to be sure, uh, it is a bear that I bear each and every uh, week. As I've preached through the various books of the Bible, I find that there are texts, and I go, wow, I can't wait to get into the pulpit. I am just so uh, overwhelmed with what uh, God is communicating uh, in this text. And there, there are texts that I approach and go, wow. What in the world do I do uh, with this particular text? Sometimes it's related to even understanding uh, what God uh, has said uh, in a particular text or uh, maybe beyond that, uh, how we uh, take uh, what was spoken and addressed to an ancient context, an ancient world. How does it uh, come forward and apply to us living in the year 2022 in beautiful uh, downtown Clay, uh, Alabama? Uh, so, uh, there are times, uh, quite honestly, uh, that in preparation, I utilize very little in the way of commentaries and other types of resources, and in their weeks, I'm incredibly uh, dependent uh, upon uh, these, uh, these resources. And so, as I uh, came to uh, this text again this week with a bit of uh, trepidation, uh, I was uh, very reliant on some outside uh, sources, because... I'm aware of the modern sensibilities re regarding historical reality and uh, contemporary attitudes about slavery. And there, that is informed by what is most assuredly uh, tragic chapters of American history where the practice of slavery uh, was carried out and again even the continuing ripple effects related uh, to race. As we speak to this issue this morning, and let me just be abrupt, if you say that you are a Christian, be it known you are a slave of the Lord Jesus Christ, like it or not. Just thought I'd get that one out of the way, okay? Now, that rubs all of us the wrong way because we are modern Americans, and if it is an authority, it must be rebelled against, right? It begins with those little darlings that you bring home from the hospital, and the first thing they say is, no! So it begins in the home. It continues within the church as we rebel against the authority of the Word of God. And then as we look out into the extended world, the call to submit to appropriate governmental authorities. More about that in just a moment. So, how does this text apply to us? Again, the idea of slavery is maybe offensive and, and certainly, hopefully, even a bit obscure. The Bible says something to us about not mixing seeds in our fields. I know... Most of you are guilty of wearing synthetic fabrics today. Um, 
It even has, the Bible even says some things about facial hair, some regulations. Uh, women and the wearing of, a, of clothing pertaining to a man. And certainly prohibitions on shellfish and surely not pork. Yeah, I'm a southern boy. So the Bible says a lot of things uh, that are difficult for us. A woman, if she is going to pray and prophesy, must what? Have a head covering. And then it even speaks directly to the issue of jewelry and braided hair. On and on it goes. So how the Bible says these things, it means what it says by what it says. So how does it apply uh, to us? And then how does this particular text fit into Luke's purpose, his plan to give an orderly account of the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ? How does it indeed advance the, the gospel, the truth regarding sin and redemption? And I, as I've already kind of tipped you off, I certainly think it does advance Luke's purpose and advance the truth of the gospel. So, as we think about this, as I've wrestled with this uh, all week, there's some good news for you. This could be a very short sermon. But there's some bad news. There's a really long introduction to the sermon. That, that is, and, and, I, and as I've, I've wrestled with this and looked at it over, and, and you know, what do I cut out and what do I... But I think to see the text for what it is, we must have some understanding and overcome some of the things that uh, we have heard and been taught and and so I think there's much to be said about trying to set this in the various appropriate uh, uh, context. And so we don't need to always recall that the Bible has been and always will be counter-cultural as well as trans-cultural. What do I mean? Well, the Bible always stands against the fallen world system. We, we are, Christians are always... Uh, uh, Go, leaning against the wind of the prevailing cultural wisdom. And then it's transcultural in that it speaks its truth to every culture without exception. The Bible instructed the early Jews to get over yourself. That these Gentiles are being saved and included in the church. So suck it up, buttercup. You're going to love these peoples because I have redeemed them from slavery just as I redeemed you from slavery. And so it is countercultural, it is transcultural, it, it indicts, it affirms, it condemns, it convenes. And in our day of the exaltation of the autonomous self in a world, it, that, that the rights of every individual is absolutely transcendent, it, it is that which is superlative above all else including biblical morality, biblical truth. I have my right to say and do and be no matter how the Bible defines it. That's our world. And so the gap between the church and the world continues uh, to widen. Now, slavery in its various forms has been a reality of the fallen world. It has existed throughout history. It has been present, contrary to the modern narrative, it's been present in Eastern as well as Western cultures. It has historically involved interracial and intraracial enslavement. That is, 
Blacks enslaved blacks, Asians enslaved Asians, Europeans enslaved Europeans, and the indigenous people of the Western Hemisphere enslaved one another as well. And so that's just a historical fact. Again, it's just the reality that the powerful take advantage of the weak, whether it's by military force, economic advantage, criminal oppression, or cultural practice. Slavery was, and it is. It is an assault upon human dignity. And so, I mentioned a moment ago that, that we rebel against authority, and, and, and that, that seems to be a part of what is a reality of our fallenness uh, with, with, within us. And my exhortation typically is to obey ordained authority, even as we've gone through this very difficult time of what our, our government has sought to do and proposed. Uh, we always need to be mindful that, that the call to submission was made in the days of these very evil uh, Roman emperors. And now, but, it, but it's interesting, we're, we're so very aware of how Authority and power can be abused. I don't know if you've followed this or not. I've been shocked. and I'm not sure how much of this to believe. It's in the news media. So you take it with a grain. But evidently one very small local city known as Brookside out on uh, I-22 on the way uh, to Jasper and to Memphis, uh, they have just become uh, a speed trap and, and a place uh, that has raised hundreds of thousands of dollars for their city coffers uh, through police abuse if, if the stories are to be believed so again I'm not denying that power cannot be abused that authority cannot be abused it is and it can be but that doesn't mean that authority and power are wrong again for those whether you're a parent or a pastor or a civil magistrate we will give an account to God for the exercise of the authority that God has entrusted to us. And so, with a, a nod to a, a further cultural context, that being our sensitivity to plagiarism, uh, I have relied heavily upon John MacArthur's recent book uh, called entitled Slave. One single word, Slave. And I gained a, a great deal of insight from, from his work. I also went back to review Thomas Sowell's outstanding book, Black Rednecks, and white liberals. Hey, it's a great book. I'm not that that was not a giggle. That 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 is heavy hitting stuff. And I commend it. But interestingly enough, in the providence of God, you know, uh, certainly MacArthur's a great scholar, Sowell, noted academic, noted scholar, but there's no higher academic authority than Rick and Bubba University. And this week, and here's something that's very distressing. All of this talk about slaves long dead, and there are 40 million people in the world today that are enslaved. Right now, as we stand here, 40 million people. You can Google it, you can go to Sowell's work, or again, you can listen to what Rick and Bubba uh, said in interviewing a man who's committed his life to stopping human trafficking by all means available. That means he goes into foreign countries and enlists evidently military and police to rescue people out of this type of situation and to destroy that which has brought about the enslavement of human beings. So I just note those references. I'll, I'll come back to them. Uh, 
As always, this work is my own. Don't be mad at John MacArthur or Rick and Bubba or Thomas Sowell. Just be mad at me. That's okay. So let's look this morning. Let's read as we think about the reality that indeed we are unworthy slaves. Read verse 7. Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him, when he is coming from the field, come at once and recline at the table? Will he not rather say to him, Prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. I think that would be a good confession for us here today. Can we say that together? We are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Pray with me. Father, thank you for your truth. It is sometimes hard to understand. And sometimes it might prick some of our modern sensibilities. And Lord, I pray that I would not in any shape, form, or fashion be offensive in my manner, in my tone. Uh, but simply that I would speak your truth, that it would be heard, Lord, we confess, in all of these things, in everything, in every moment of every day, in every circumstance, we are entirely, completely dependent upon you, that we would be heard, that we would be understood, and that ultimately you would be obeyed. Lord, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we see here in the text that The historical context for the parable was a time in which slavery was familiar and a virtually universally accepted practice among Old Testament Jews and even more accepted in the Greco-Roman world of Jesus' day. So Jesus can take what people saw, what they knew, what they knew was going on around them, and he can make a spiritual point without, in some universal, unconditional way, saying slavery is a great thing or that it's a good thing. He is not doing that, but he is appealing to that which is known to illustrate a very important biblical truth. So this is not the place to go uh, to get a, a systematic theology Uh, on what the Bible has to say uh, about uh, slavery. And, you know, as in most parables, it's basically designed to communicate one particular idea. What's the idea? That we, indeed, are the slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ. So one of the basic issues, and this is kind of where John MacArthur begins in this book, Slave, and I did not, I, this was new, I did not realize this. But the Greek that is translated in my English Standard Version, and I would suspect in every version that's here today, uh, the, the word uh, translated servant is doulos, okay? It's used a number of times throughout uh, the Bible. And before the translation of even the King James Version, English versions of the Bible, were avoiding uh, translating doulos as slaves and inserting the word servant. And so he builds the case scholarly, appealing to uh, ample research, that the correct translation of doulos, at least in most cases, should be that of slave. So again, that 
gets our attention at least. The second issue is the portrayal of the master here in that he seems a bit harsh and ungracious. Well, again, this is not a systematic unveiling of all of the characteristics of God. It is, a, it is simply a story you, used to illustrate this great truth of the authority of the master and the submission of the slave. And so, it doesn't say everything that we can say about discipleship. It doesn't say everything we can say about the lordship of Christ. But it makes a particular point that indeed we are under the authority of of Jesus Christ. And so we see Jesus using a series of three questions, uh, rhetorical questions. Uh, the first one's no, the second one's yes, the third one is no. So if you want to pass the test, just remember that, okay? I'm sure all you school teachers have had kids try to memorize the, the answers to the, to the test. Well, that's the answer to uh, this particular text. Now, I mentioned last week, as, as we kind of got into to chapter 17 some more, is, is this section, is it, is, it a, is it a continuation or is it disjointed and separated from the rest of chapter 17? And the more I've looked at it, I, I see a, a, a real flow. Uh, maybe, certainly going back to, he set his face toward Jerusalem. But, but particularly, you see in chapter 15, these phrases used to show you, okay, and this happened, and this happened, and this happened, and this happened. In other words, in 15.1, we see now the tax collectors. In 16.1, he also said, and then in 15.11, he said, uh, and he said. In 16.1, and he also said. And in 17, and he said to the disciples. And then we have here in verse 7, after speaking to this, these disciples and answering their request regarding faith, will any of you? So, kind of stands, looks to me like there's uh, linguistic connections, wants to see all of this is going together, and certainly thematically. Because what we see is these various characteristics that are incumbent upon those who would serve the Lord Jesus Christ. The, the characteristics of forgiveness, and faith, and submission, and humility, and thankfulness, and awareness, and perseverance. That all the way from introducing us to the difficulty of discipleship. And I've told you before, Luke has rubbed me raw for a long time. It is a challenging book. It says things that keep me up at night. All the way through the end of this chapter, dealing with uh, what we might call the enigma of the very kingdom of God. And so, let's deal with a bit of kind of the modern phenomenon as we get into this a little more. And, and again, wanting you to see it for what is being said. The only way to learn and grow from, uh, improve from the failures of history is to accurately reflect upon history by means of an accurate record telling the truth about uh, the figures and events of history with all of their warts and all of their blemishes. The modern effort to rewrite history uh, is not a new thing, okay? And slanted history is not a new thing. Guess what? The winners get to write the history, okay? That, that even the Bible itself is an apologetic history. It is written to present and defend the realities of this God is the God. He is the one to whom you owe allegiance. That is the reason it tells us the history. And so, with that being said, as we think about the modern indictments of 
Western civilization, as Christianity took root and moved across the continental uh, Europe, uh, there became an increasing awareness of the sinfulness of slavery. And, and I think we're still growing in our, 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 our awareness of race-based prejudice, uh, practices that, that are uh, tainted by racial pre- prejudice, that there are hindrances that have been placed upon uh, black Americans. And we want to see wrong, we want to see evil uh, for what it, what it is. But we also want to be careful about the modern attitudes and sensibilities about all previous generations. This broad indictment of white European culture and the specific indictment of the United, that the United States uh, that, uh, fails to recognize that individuals uh, from Western Europe, namely our founding fathers, that what they did while they were imperfect men, imperfect men they did more to end slavery because of, their, of the influence of Christianity than any other group in the course of history. While it's very popular in our day to indict the framers of our founding documents, it is those very documents that provided the philosophical and legal framework for emancipation and civil rights. I believe that the founding fathers knew they were planting the seeds that would flourish into liberty for all. Martin Luther King said these words, August 28, 1963. I would assume this to be his most famous speech. It's often referred to as I Have a Dream speech. He wrote or said this, In a sense, we have come to our nation's capital to cash a check when the architects of our great republic wrote the magnificent words of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. They were signing a promissory note to which every American was to fall heir. This note was a promise that all men, yes, black men, as well as white men, would be guaranteed the inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It is obvious today that America has defaulted on that promissory note insofar as her citizens of color are concerned. Instead of honoring this sacred obligation, America has given its colored people a bad check, a check that's come back marked insufficient funds. But we refuse to believe that the bank of justice is bankrupt. We refuse to believe that there are insufficient funds in the great vaults of opportunity of this nation. So we have come to cash this check, a check that will give us upon demand the riches of freedom and security and of justice. Now, what have I just said? The documents he appeals to. They weren't, they weren't necessarily written by Christians. Some Christians were involved. But there were men that had been influenced by Christians. They were products of a society that had been deeply influenced by the Christian worldview. And on the basis of that worldview, they wrote these documents that Dr. King says embedded in them are the principles that he wants to see played out in the culture, namely of freedom and justice for all. Now again, far from the popular notion that all of modern culture and all whites are racist and all are bigots and all are guilty is far, far from the truth. Now, it's tragic that professing Christians owned slaves in the course of American history and we can rightly, in some sense, indict them for their sinful errors. We can say they they should have known better. And at some level, while certainly the slaves were victims, They were victimized by their own culture because they accepted a system which limited 
human flourishing, and they were far poorer for it. Okay? That's why sometimes when I speak to these issues, I want everybody to do well. When everybody does well, guess who does well? Okay? I like that. Okay? That's what we want to see. But if the feet of clay of our forebears disqualifies them from being remembered appropriately, then who can be remembered? We can't remember King David. We can't even remember the Apostle Paul or even the Apostle Peter who had to be straightened out on his race-based prejudice. How about the great liberal presidents, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, John Fitzgerald Kennedy, Lyndon Baines Johnson, certainly the morality of their private life would disqualify them from being remembered in any significant way. And even Martin Luther King himself had some things in his private life that trouble all of us. And so, again, people in the past sinned. They made mistakes. There were errors. There are things that have been handed down to us that, that were sinful and wrong, and maybe we've accepted them. But, again, that doesn't mean, that doesn't mean that they didn't make contributions that need to be accepted and remembered. Now, the Bible itself certainly has a great many of disturbing episodes and disturbing individuals, and we need to see them rightly in context and see how they fit into God's narrative of unveiling His Son, Jesus Christ. We wouldn't dismiss ancient slavery as just or equitable, but it wasn't identical to the horrors of American slavery. And so when we read the biblical reference to slaves, uh, we can't read into that account the enslavements of the blacks in America. Again, uh, racism or race-based prejudice is and always has been sin. Period. Always has been. There have been any number of professing Christians that have put forth bogus arguments for segregation and other forms of oppression. Birmingham, Alabama being kind of a hot seat of all these type things. In my lifetime, a governor of the state stood in front of the state university and said that he would not allow blacks to enter that school and segregation would stand in the state forever. Well, that didn't work out so well for him. It is a part of history. And so, what occurred in the, the early days of our republic, the enslavement of blacks was wrong. It was sin. It's called chattel slavery. And let me be clear, the Bible actually condemns it. So, again, a lot, of people, a lot of Christians don't obey the Bible, don't understand the Bible, but in Exodus chapter 21, verse 16, whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Well, that's how slaves got to the United States of America. They were kidnapped, they were taken to America. Now, black human beings were captured in their native lands by means of inhuman practices and were first forcibly brought to America and other colonies in the West. They were sold as property with no reasonable hope of emancipation. Again, Thomas Sowell notes in Black Rednecks and White Liberals that indeed slavery came to America through the commercial endeavors of white Europeans. But it's also true, as he notes, that these slaves were betrayed into the hands of white traders by their fellow black Africans, okay? Now again, it's very popular to say it's all our fault, it's all the white folks' fault, but again, there was some complicity there. Why? White Europeans couldn't live in tropical Africa. They got malaria and they died. 
it was blacks betraying blacks into the hands of white slave traders. And so, we need to remember, slavery ended in Europe through the efforts of white European Christians. And that many native Africans betrayed their own people into the hands of these slave traders. And intra-racial slavery was a reality in both Africa and the Middle East. Yes, indeed. There's guilt and there's blame to bear. But the narrative, again, that all white people are racist, that they are all uh, guilty of uh, enslaving black people, that is a false narrative. Again, it's interesting to me, I mentioned a moment ago, 40 million slaves in the world today. What galls me is to pick up my remote control and watch a television program of athletes participating in events in a nation that is the most oppressive regime on the face of the earth. We ought not be there. But even more intriguing, as the, this, the regime in China has engaged in genocide against a group of Muslims known as the Uyghurs, as oppressive as they are, and the reality that there are 40 million people enslaved in the world, these people like LeBron James that want to call out the United States of America for being racist have absolutely nothing to say about the 40 million people that are enslaved right now, that are alive, that might be set free if he'd throw some of his millions their way toward these efforts to free them while taking millions and millions of dollars from communist China. That is an appalling hypocrisy. And so, actually more Africans were enslaved in the Islamic nations in the Middle East and in North Africa than in the U.S. It's kind of interesting. Current climate, Bible, Christian, bad. Muslim, Koran, good. And yet, they're still enslaving millions of people. And so, slavery is simply historical reality. Slavery was common to all civilizations, were civilized or uncivilized. Only one civilization formed a moral revulsion and opposition to it, namely the Western European societies, and they did it while their economies, particularly their colonies, were dependent on slave labor. In the 18th century, Europeans were slave traders. In the 19th century, they were bent on destroying the slave trade. Why? Because of the influence of Christianity. By 1849, British ships destroyed slave ships in Brazilian waters. Okay? They fought against it. Now, so, let's get back into the text at hand. The word doulos. The word doulos appears 124 times in the New Testament. 124 times. The corresponding Hebrew word, habed, appears a thousand times in the Old Testament. And so while the Old Testament prescribes a methodology for a willing indenturement in Deuteronomy 15, 12 and other places, the word doulos referred to a system in which there is a master and a slave. The arrangement isn't voluntary on the part of the slave. The slave is not free to change the arrangement. The slave can be bought, sold, and punished at the discretion of the master. The slave had no rights. His his well-being was the duty and discretion of the master, and he was under obligation to unfailingly and perpetually carry out the assignment as demanded by the master. So again, that's kind of the context of ancient slavery. Now again, now that you're rightly offended, 
You're going to be a slave to somebody. No greater theologian than Bob Dylan once sang, but you're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, indeed, you're going to have to serve somebody. Well, it may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but, you gotta, or, but you're going to serve somebody. He spoke the truth. You're going to serve somebody. The Bible says you're born as a slave to sin and Satan, and you're set free, you're saved to be a slave of righteousness. You're enslaved to an omnibenevolent master who rules over us for our own good. It is a good thing that we are indeed slaves of Christ. And even in, in, in the ancient world, as slavery was prevalent, I've read that about 25% of the Roman Empire was actually slaves, 12 out of 50 million people. Uh, were slaves in the Roman Empire. Uh, typically, it wasn't so much based on race, it was based on power. Uh, I conquered you, you're now my slave. Now, in ancient Israel, um, since God typically told the Israelites when they went in, just kill them all. Corpses don't make great slaves, okay? So there, there was some slavery, uh, and it usually came back uh, uh, to bite them. But the predominant image of slave in the Old Testament is this reality that God is the redeemer of the slaves. That He has acted unilaterally by His own power, by His grace, to redeem the enslaved Israelites that were under the oppressive regime of Pharaoh in Egypt. And He calls upon them not to rewrite that history, but to remember that you were a slave and you have been redeemed. Deuteronomy 24.17 says this, You shall not pervert justice do to the sojourner or to the fatherless or take a widow's garment and a pledge, but you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I command you to do this. Based on the relationship, I am your Lord. You are my slave. Now, I hereby command you. That is, that is the relationship of the Christian to our Lord. The, the gospel is the call to surrender to Christ as Master and Lord. The Greek word kurios, that's sometimes translated as Lord, sometimes translated as Master, is also used in the Greek version of the Old Testament to translate uh, the names for God, Adonai and Yahweh. Again, emphasizing that God, who is our covenant God, our covenant Lord, is indeed our Master. And you are serving a master. Jesus himself said in Matthew 6, 24, no man can serve two masters. The reality is you're serving a master. You're either serving the Lord Jesus Christ or you're serving Satan himself. Jesus himself said, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. You're a slave to Christ. You're a slave to sin. Two categories. That's it. That's all. You're one or the other. Now, to our text. Finally, the sermon. That was the introduction. It was a little long. Sermon's pretty easy. All right, verse 7. Rhetorical question. Expected answer is no. If you have a servant, he's at work, he comes in from the field, do you tell him to sit down and take a break? What's the answer? No. He's a servant. He was doing what he was expected to do. Second question. Will you not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and afterwards you will eat and drink? Expected answer, yes, that's what I would do. He's my servant. He's my slave. That's what he's supposed to do. Third question, does he thank the servant because he did what's commanded? No. Servant was doing, the slave was doing what the owner, what the master commanded 
him to do. So the upshot, the, the lesson of the parable is don't think too highly of yourself. Don't get all pompous about who, who you are because at the end of the day, you are the slave of the Lord Jesus Christ and that which you do is you're doing under His authority according to His command. And so all you are at the end of the day is an unworthy servant that has done what you've been called and commanded and redeemed and created to do. And so it says something to us about the necessity of humility, the necessity of obedience and submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. Our attitude cannot be that of entitlement, but it's commitment to the Lordship of Christ in our lives. We have been called, we have been commanded, and we have been compelled to live under His authority. Now to be sure, He is our gracious Lord and Savior and Master as the Savior. It is a good thing to be the slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus takes a negative thing the denial of freedom and rights of individuals and turns it and makes a positive thing out of it. But make no mistake about it. You have given up your rights. You have no rights other than those granted to you under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. He came as a slave. He took the form, Paul says in Philippians 2, of a doulos. Of a slave. What did, he came as a slave and he came as Isaiah predicted, the servant of the Lord. He came as a slave of God the Father to carry out the will of the Father, namely to die on the cross to redeem those who were slaves of sin, to redeem them as a people for himself, to be his righteous slaves forever. It's interesting, in John's account of that final meal with the disciples he gives us the account of the the Lord washing the disciples feet and he, Jesus said I have washed your feet I am your teacher I, I, I am your Lord and, and you should do as I have done that is I have taken this form of a slave I have submitted myself to the authority of the heavenly father I have entered this realm for the sake of your redemption I have, I have become the servant of all so should you, you should serve all by what? Being my slave, following my example. Again, the parable doesn't say everything there is to say about what it means to be a Christian. Uh, yes, indeed. Paul speaks of us having the, uh, the Spirit of God, and it, it is a spirit of sonship, a spirit by which we cry, Abba, Father. Father. Uh, he can also say that we're no longer slaves, but sons in Galatians 4.1. Those are all true. But even the Son, according to Galatians 4.1, is under authority. We are under authority. So, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 6.20 that we were bought with a price, therefore glorify God with your body. We were purchased by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, by that which is imperishable, the precious blood of the Lamb without blemish, bought from the slave market of sin. He is our Lord. He is our head. He is our master. We are under His authority. We are His possession. His treasured possession. You don't like that, do you? We are Christ's possession by right of creation, by right 
of redemption. And the exhortation that we saw in our earlier scripture passage, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as doulos, as slaves of God. How? By honoring everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Now, we are empowered, we've talked about the law on the heart. Now remember, uh, the Bible at least depicts two types of slavery. There was an indentured type of slavery. And we can kind of argue about this because I think both images of slave are in view. In my natural self, I am unwilling to surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That's some of my problem with modern day evangelism and kind of its appeals and everything. You know, no, I don't want to go to hell. Yeah, I'm, I'm on board with that. But I have no desire whatsoever to surrender myself to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That takes the work of the Holy Spirit. That takes the work of regeneration. So yes, in some sense, we are unwilling. But when we are born again, we are made willing. And here's what we do. We come before our Master in a sense, and I'm being a bit metaphorical, but as described in Deuteronomy 15, we stand in the door and say, Pierce my ear with the awe. I am surrendered. I, am, I have been made willing by your grace to be known as your slave forever and ever and ever. What a beautiful picture. Indeed, we are slaves. In some, way we were, in some sense, we're captured slaves, and, but in another sense, we are willing slaves who love our benevolent master. By the work of regeneration, we are joyful slaves who rejoice in the goodness of of our Master, and our Master rules over us for our good and His glory. Again, we're either slaves to righteousness or we're slaves to sin. No, only two categories. Here's the thing, the final thing this morning. Go to, go to Revelation chapter 20. And if you're offended today, and you hate this concept, you think it's wrong. You think, well, there goes old Tim again. You know how he is. You know how he gets on these things. You know, you know. If you don't like the idea of being the slave of Christ in this life, you're not going to like eternity very well. Okay? That's just a fact. Look at Revelation chapter 22. We'll begin there in verse 3. Describing the eternal estate. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his doulos, his slaves will worship him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more and they will need no light or a lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. And so, we're in the presence of God in the presence of the symbol of His sovereign authority, His throne, with His mark of His ownership engraved forever on our foreheads. And we will see His face and we will rejoice forever. We will know Him as we have never known Him before and we will celebrate Him. We will thank You for breaking my will and causing me to surrender to Your will. And night will be no more and there will be no need of lamp or sun because the Lord God is all the light. And we, the slaves, in this here and now time, we, the slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ, it is said that we will rule and reign with Him forever. Slave kings. Sounds pretty good. Sounds pretty good. Slaves of the merciful, kind, 
generous, sacrificial master, our Lord Jesus Christ. If we are to rule and reign with him forever, we must be his slave in the here and now. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness, for your grace, for the reality of what you've done for us on the cross, what you've done in us by this work of regeneration, by the continuing witness of your authority, by the realities of the Word and Spirit. May we honor you. That is what you have saved us to do, is honor you by daily recognizing your Lordship, by daily denying ourselves, daily taking up that cross, and daily being willing to die with our Master. We pray this in Jesus' name.